This morning's reading comes from John chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take your take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, "Is It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, the man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. As I was going back to sit down, I thought, why why do we always wait until like people step down before we encourage them? And, and, and I thought, man, we should really repent of that. And then I realized that means you should be encouraging John and Mike and I. So I, I invite you into repentance <laughs> <laughs> this morning, uh, even as we go over to eat and we say nice things about Kyle and Johanna. Just be thinking about what repentance looks like in that all right, well, it's hard not to hear the Willie Nelson song on the road again, <clears throat> playing in my head as we open chapter 5. Uh, after some unspecified time in Galilee, Jesus headed back down to Jerusalem. Um, quite a, it's quite a trek to get all the way down there uh, for another feast. There were three major feasts that all the males and many of the people of Israel uh, were required to attend. Annually, Passover, Tabernacles, and Weeks. John doesn't say which one this was in particular that drew Jesus back to Jerusalem, and so we can assume that it doesn't matter. Uh, There's a lot written on which one it might have been, but if it mattered that much, John would have told us. He does with all the rest. All that matters, it seems, is that the feast was the cause of this trip for Jesus to Jerusalem, which was the occasion for the healings that he performed while there, which was the occasion for the further anger and persecution of the Jewish leaders, which would eventually be the occasion for the crucifixion, suffering, death, and resurrection of our Lord. There's a lot going on in this passage, a lot of questions in particular, more than usual for me. I don't I'm a, I'm a, I'm a guy of questions. And typically when I come to a new text, that's the first thing that happens is my brain just sort of 
it's like stuff starts moving in my brain to find out what I understand and don't understand. And if I really understand what I think I understand and, and all that comes in the form of questions. And I, and I often give you some, but I want to give you more this week. I, in fact, I want to encourage you to approach the Bible this way. That's mainly why I'm going to give these questions to you, not because I'm going to answer them all, but because I think it's helpful to think like this when you come to a passage. What's the sheep gate? Why was John silent about the feast, which one it was, but exceptionally detailed about this pool? What kind of pool was it? Why were the invalids laying there? What happened to verse 4? Look at your Bibles or look at the screen. What in the world happened to verse 4? It got lost somehow. Had the man gone to the pool for all 38 years he was crippled? Since Jesus knew what the pool was and was for, and that man had been, and that man had been, he, Jesus also knew that that man had been there for a long time. Why in the world would he ask him if he wanted to be healed? What was the connection between being healed and the pool water being stirred up? How is it possible that the man talked to Jesus, was healed by Jesus, but did not see Jesus? What does it mean to take up your bed? I've never done that before. What, what, what was unlawful about taking up your bed on the Sabbath, whatever it was? How is it possible for the Jews to be more focused on a man taking up his bed than a 38-year invalid becoming completely healed? How's that work? Did Jesus' words in verse 14 suggest that the man was an invalid because of his sin, some sin in him? Why did the man go to tell the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him, knowing what the Jews thought of the Jesus who healed him? How does Jesus' claim of perpetual work by the Father, how, how does Jesus' work, how does, uh, let me just read it. How does Jesus' claim of perpetual work by the Father relate to the seventh day and the Sabbath? Was it normal, wasn't it normal for the Jews to think of God as Father? And if so, why are they giving Jesus guff for that? How was Jesus making himself equal to God in this situation? This is some of them. And I, I want us to be thoughtful and careful and come to the text, especially if you grew up in this. If you've been reading this and hearing this your whole life, be more thoughtful. Be more careful. Be more inquisitive. Ask these questions. Something I learned a while ago that I'm very thankful I learned. None of you, including me, none of us are smart enough to ask a question that hasn't been asked before. So get over yourself and ask questions and find the answers. Some of them are there. All of the, all of the ones we need to know are there. So those are just some of the questions that jump off the page to me when I, when I read through this text. In this sermon, I am going to answer some of them directly because they really help us get to the heart of the matter. Some I'll answer indirectly and some you'll have to ask later because I won't even touch them in the sermon. The main points I want to be the main points, and they are these. Number one, Jesus had the power to perform miracles. Write that down. Tell your neighbor. Etch that on your heart and on your mind. That's more than you think it is. Jesus had the power to perform miracles. He used that power to serve others, validate his claims, and glorify God. Not fulfill the desires of the flesh, of worldly flesh. Third, the heart of the Jews were so hardened that Jesus' miracles and teaching 
made them violently angry. We got to see all three of those things. And my hope is that as we do in this text, the result will be that all of us would be more eager to worship, pray, and obey. Let's pray. God, thank you for this passage. Thank you for the remarkable things that it teaches us. I pray that in some ways it would be familiar to us, and this would be a reminder, but I also pray that we would be, at at least, even if we've heard these before, we'd at least have a fresh measure of shock and awe at the shocking and awesome things in this passage. God, your word is living and active, which means that no matter how many times we hear it, there is more in it for us than we've ever received. So please let us experience that in increasing measure this morning. God, make us a people who do not just like to have our ears itched, to hear things that are interesting or, or fun or confirming or helpful about your word and from your word. But let us be a people who are desperate for nuggets of grace and treasures that go beyond what we understand. Let us be a people who, when we come to the text, realize that we've been thirsty for a long time, even though we didn't know we were thirsty, as it quenches something deep in us. God, let us be a people who come to the text eager every time to grow in our praise for you and to find out what you require of us, not so that we can check something off a list, but because we know that everything you require of us is better than everything else we would do. Fill us with that knowledge and fill us with that reality this morning through Jesus Christ, our Lord, I pray. Amen. Okay, so... If you know anything about Jesus, it's probably that he had the power to perform miracles. Probably. If you learned one thing in Sunday school or heard one thing from a friend growing up, it's probably that. We've seen it before. Well, we see it here and we'll see it again. Please keep in mind that John recounts these signs, wonders, these miracles primarily to help us see that Jesus is the Christ and all that that means for us. Who else but the Christ could do these things? And how can we fail to believe in him in light of that? And for all who do, there is no longer perishing, but everlasting life. That's that's why he shared these ultimately. But the first, I want to give you a brief overview. The first recorded miracle in John's gospel is chapter 2, and it tells us that. It was at a wedding, I'm sure you remember, when the wine ran out, Jesus miraculously turned water into the most excellent wine. In addition, and without elaboration, in chapter 2 also, at the end of it, John wrote this, get this, Now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs, plural, that he was doing. At the beginning of chapter 3, John recorded one of the leading Jews, a Pharisee named Nicodemus, acknowledging Jesus' ability and the fact that he had performed, again, plural, signs. It's important for us to see that even those skeptical of Jesus acknowledged that he had the the power to do things no one else could. Our passage for this morning, for this week, we read of Jesus' miraculous, I'm sorry, for last week, in our passage last week, we read of Jesus miraculously healing an official son. And the remarkable thing of that is he saved him from death, but he did so merely by saying he would do so, not 
by being near him. He was a day's journey away, and by his word, he was healed. Our text for this morning has a, another similar healing that we'll consider in a minute. In a minute, Grace, if you've read John, you know this, but as we continue to work through the gospel, we'll see that he will miraculously feed 5,000 people from five loaves of bread and two fish. We're going to try to do that after the service today. He's going to walk on water. He's going to heal a man born blind. He's going to raise another man from the dead. He's going to foretell one of his disciples denying him, and he's going to raise from the dead himself. On top of all that, at the very end of John's gospel, kids, write this down and check this out. This is pretty neat. John wrote, now Jesus did many other things. This is chapter 20, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which were not even written in this book. And so of the, of, of the ones that he lists, there are many more still that wouldn't even fit. Grace, by God's design, the world ordinarily works in certain ways. Let me say that again, because if you're a kid taking science class, or if you're an adult who looks back unfondly at your science class, you need to hear this. In our passage for this morning, we can see that the world is designed by God to work in certain ways. And that's all science is, is figuring out those ordinary ways. Things fall at a constant rate from the sky. The earth rotates on its own axis and around the sun in a predictable time frame. Objects maintain their properties. Dead people stay dead. For instance, that's the ordinary way in which God has made the world work. And here's the point for us to grasp. I love this. Uh, of, of all of this, this passage, two things drew me to worship most consistently this week, and this is one of them. The key point for us to grasp, and the one that is so strangely easy to forget, is that Jesus is the author and sustainer of those ways. He is not bound by him. They are bound by him. He, he is not bound by them. They are bound by him. That's awesome. Be amazed. Trust him, Grace Church. And so again, uh, that's a brief look at the, the overall picture of miracles in John's gospel. But again, in our passage for this morning, we read of another one, a sp- another specific one. There's several layers to it. And by looking at each of them in turn, I think we can get the most out of it. That is, we can see and appreciate the unique glory of God revealed in them and the way that that helps us to see even more clearly the mission of Jesus. In order that we might grow in our certainty that Jesus is the Christ, in order that we might grow to believe in him more and more and have life, let's consider the location, the characters, the question, the miracle, and the turbo boosts of the miracle in these verses. What's the location? This is important. Uh, It's especially important in this section. Verse 2 tells us, Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. Now this was important not because of what it really was, but because of what people thought it was. It was believed that this particular pool had healing powers. You may notice that part of verse 3 and all of verse 4 are missing from your Bible. Later on today, check this out. Read the footnote. Don't do it now because you're going to miss what I'm saying. But but read the footnote. It'll explain some things that are kind of important. 
The reason they're not in there now is because we realized something that they would have realized at first and then forgot. What do I mean by that? That sounds confusing. But the, the reason they're in a footnote now is because they were likely included as a side note in the original and, and then earliest manuscripts to explain a little bit of what's going on here by one of the scribes. You likely, again, have a footnote explaining that. And as your footnote probably also explains, it was superstitiously believed that the angel, an angel, would come down and stir up the water. And the first person who got into that after the angel stirred that up would be healed. The location matters, not because of what it was, but because of what it was believed to be. How about the characters? In verse 3, we're told that in those, that is the roofed colonnades, lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. It is not clear how many exactly were present when Jesus arrived, but we learn from verse 13 it was quite a few. It's called a crowd. And the, the key to... The the key to this, though, is the fact that Jesus wasn't there for all of them, or even just any one of them, but for one person in particular. That brings us to the question. In verse 6, we find Jesus walking up to one man, the one man that he had come for. We find him asking this man a question. When Jesus saw him lying there and, and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? Again, it seems like a silly question, doesn't it? The man had been crippled for nearly 40 years and was waiting by a pool, evidently for some time, hoping to be healed by its waters. Of course he wanted to be healed, right? He said as much in his response in verse 7, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool. Yeah, I want to be healed, but... I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going down, someone gets there before me. He basically said, of course I want to be healed, but I'm too crippled to get to the water first on my own. And I don't have anyone to help me get there faster. Perhaps he was hoping that Jesus was offering to get him down there quicker, to carry him down. Well, far from being a silly question, however, Jesus was dead earnest. And his question was meant to do two very serious things. First, it was meant to expose the ridiculousness of the current, of the man's current approach. Do you want to continue to play superstitious games or do you really want to be healed? Was the heart of Jesus' question. And second, it was meant to cause the man to turn his eyes up from the pool to the one before him who was truly able to do what the man wanted. Again, it's as if he said, do you know that the one standing before you alone has the power to do what this water cannot? What Jesus was offering this man in the physical realm, grace, he also offers to all who hear of his gospel. Do you want to be healed? Are you mostly happy with your life, but would just like a few tweaks, maybe in the way of health, relationships or your job or something like that. Maybe your kids would just get a little better or your spouse would be a little nicer or you'd have a spouse or your boss would pay you a little bit more or you'd get that promotion. Are you, are you mostly happy with your life and you would just like a few improvements? You don't need to be healed. You just need a little help. Or do you long for something far greater? Jesus stood before this man and said, I am the far greater something. I am the way and the truth and eternal life. And that gets us then to the miracle. 
without even replying to the man's explanation of not being able to get down there fast enough. Again, in an entirely understated way, John has this habit of telling us miraculous things and it's way too few words in my estimation. But Jesus said to him in verse 8, get up, take up your bed and walk. That's it. Just like when John recorded Jesus' healing of the official son, there's no mention of any action on Jesus' part. No prayer, no special gestures, no staff like Moses, nothing. And on top of that, get this, because this is all a picture of salvation. It seems that the man had no idea who Jesus was or what is he, he was even talking about. He didn't even know what Jesus was actually offering, much less that he had any kind of genuine faith in Jesus. What's more, Grace, it also seems that the man had some sort of sin tied to his condition. That's not always the case, but it seems in some way that's part of this case. So it certainly wasn't his own righteousness that somehow allowed for Jesus' healing. What this means is that apart, again, this is a picture of the gospel, apart from any belief or before the gospel came to him, before the good news came to him, There was no belief on his part. There was no merit on his part. Apart from any of that, apart from any righteousness on his part, apart from any mediating instrument on Jesus' part, Jesus said a word and he was healed. And at once the man was healed and took up his bed and walked. That's awesome. (laughs) Grace, that's awesome. I can tell by your faces you don't know how awesome that is. And so fortunately for you, there's three turbo buttons here that Jesus is going to push. As if the miracle itself were not enough, there are three additional things that Jesus did to amplify the miracle and change your faces to be more amazed. As amazing as the healing was, Jesus helps us to see it's even more amazing still. Before I tell you what they are, I want you to get this. Jesus performed a miracle. <laughs> Have you done that? I No. Have I? No. Probably we haven't seen that. This was an unbelievable thing. 40 years of not being able to walk. And just like that, it, it, there's not even any hobbling. He just got up, did more than just get up because he was able to carry a bed and he walked. Make sure you understand what I'm saying. He performed a miracle which is miraculous by definition, just so you know. But rather than simply do something no one else could do, in order to leave no doubt, in order to change our faces and make our eyes get bigger, Jesus went three steps further still. Now let me, let me okay, this, I think this is helpful. I went back and forth all week. I think this is help, helpful. Iowa has a wrestler who won a third straight national championship last year, a feat very few people have ever accomplished. Well, amazing as that was in his own right, there were two additional facts that make it more remarkable still. One is that he was a junior, which means he has the chance this year. He's completely undefeated. Uh, He's not been taken down yet one time. No, yes, he has. Never mind, I lied about that. Uh, he He has not lost yet this year. He has a chance to win a fourth, um, which is pretty amazing. The second thing is, after winning the championship last year as a junior, he was interviewed by a TV reporter. And for the first time, he kept this from everyone. He and his coach kept it from everyone. 
he did it with two torn ACLs. He had neither ACL uh, in which to win a national championship. And so what Jesus did is sort of like that, <laughs> but greater still. And it, if you want to know who it is, I'll tell you later. And you can watch last year and follow along this year. One of the greatest wrestlers of all time. Well, in addition to healing the paralyzed man, Jesus made sure, and I remember watching, by the way, last year. I'm not going to go too far down on this. And I remember thinking, something's not right. He, this is not how he normally wrestles. And I could tell in the match. And to find that out later took something really cool and made it greater still. Jesus blows this out of the water. That's my point in telling you this. In addition to healing the paralyzed man, Jesus made sure to heal the one who had likely been an invalid longer than anyone else. You know, you pick the guy that just like three days, he's been an invalid for three days. I don't even know how that works, but just imagine that happens and he heals the guy who, you know, okay, well maybe, maybe Jesus healed, healed him or maybe he just got better on his own or maybe if it's the guy for six months or, or, or a year, you know, people, people get better. Maybe, Maybe he did touch that water first one time and just didn't realize it. But Jesus didn't just pick anyone. He picked the one that had been been an invalid for almost 40 years. Verse 5 says, One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Jesus made sure to heal the hardest case of all of them so as to leave no doubt. The second turbo boost is found at the very end of 9. Now this day was the Sabbath. And I'm going to tell you a lot more about this in the next next week, in the next sermon. But as we'll see in the final section, Jesus caused a paralyzed man to stand up and walk instantly, a man who had been paralyzed longer than anyone else in the pool likely, and he did so on the day that he knew would absolutely force the issue of his Christness in a way that no other day would, the Sabbath. Again, I'll tell you more about that later. And third, While it seems that Jesus had every opportunity to do all of this and still avoid detection, do you get that? Did you pick up on that during the scripture reading? Even though he did it, did it on the Sabbath, the guy somehow didn't recognize who he was. And so when the religious leaders came to him and and started talking to him, he, he didn't even know to point to Jesus. So Jesus could have done all that and still skated away without persecution. But verse 14 lets us know that Jesus purposefully went back to the man in order to reveal himself to the man and call him to repentance. Again, Jesus not only performed a miracle, but also made sure everyone knew it was him, even though it meant facing persecution. Jesus has the power not only to do miracles, but to do the most miraculous miracles. In all of this grace, we must learn to stand in absolute awe. And we must learn to never doubt the power of God to accomplish everything that he pleases. Again, grace, do not grow weary in trusting in God. Some of you have been praying for things for quite some time. Do not grow weary in trusting in God. He is perfectly faithful to his every promise and is entirely able to answer your every prayer. We all want to be like the official in the last passage who had his request, his request granted immediately. But consider the greater glory of God in waiting 38 years to heal this man and then consider the ailment the apostle Paul carried with him until he died. God never healed him in this life. And consider that all three, here's the key, 
Consider that all three of those, an instant healing, a, a decades delayed healing, and a never healing, all three were equally best. Find your rest, not in your own sense of timing, but in the perfect wisdom, power, and goodness of God. You with me, Grace? All right. Before we get to the final section, I want to draw your attention to something that's all over John's gospel. It's all over the gospels, but almost always subtly and implicitly. Some couple of times it's explicit, but it's almost always there just subtly and implicitly, namely the reasons for Jesus' miracles, three of them, to serve others, to validate his claims, and to glorify God. If the normal laws of nature did not apply to you, if you had the power to perform miracles, what would you use that power for? Be honest. What would you use it for? (laughs) Grant's got some ideas. What would you use that for? I'm honestly not sure. I, 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 I really did try to think about this this week. It probably would involve soil suitable for a septic system. Um, I have to believe I did use it in at least some ways to benefit myself. Perhaps, perhaps even in something that's probably good, simple, secret, rather than selfish, like making my ears stop having ear problems. I mean, you wouldn't even know, so it wouldn't it wouldn't be about me. It, it just, I mean, I guess it would, but you know what I mean. So, what would you do if you had? the power to perform miracles. Well, think think back to the signs I just named that John records Jesus having done. Recall the signs and miracles that Jesus performed and consider the simple reality that not one of them benefited him in any earthly way. Every one of them was for the good, the service of another. He blessed his mom and saved wedding guests' embarrassment. He healed a boy dying at the plea of his desperate father. He caused a paralytic man to walk. He fed the hungry. He strengthened the faith of his disciples. He gave sight to the blind. He raised a friend from the dead. He prepared a follower for faithfulness after sin. And he saved the world. (laughs) That's it. Praise and grace. And join him in using whatever gifts you have and whatever power God has entrusted to you, not to grow your own earthly kingdom or comfort or pleasure, but to serve others that they might know Jesus as Christ and believe in him and have eternal life. The second reason we find in John's Gospels for Jesus' miracles is to validate the claims that he made. And there are at least two senses in which that would was the case. In simplest terms, Jesus' miracles proved that he had the authority to say what he said. All right, I, I try to think of a goofy one. Imagine a four-foot-tall basketball player. Four feet tall, that's, that's pretty short, right? Coming up to you and bragging that they could dunk a regulation basketball on a regulation hoop on a regulation court. No, no trampolines or anything. Your first reaction probably would be to chuckle. Obviously, they're telling you a joke, you would think. But if it became plain that they weren't joking, that they believed that they could do that, that they thought that they were being serious, what would it take for you, for you to believe that person? Well, of course, the answer is that they would dunk a basketball. If they did, you'd believe them. 
be weird, but you'd believe them. Well, what would it take for you to take seriously, to seriously believe someone who claimed that they had the authority to forgive sins and end death and give everlasting life? What would it take? And the answer is probably something that looks a lot like this, what we have in our passage for this morning. Ultimately, it would take someone who would rise from the dead themselves, which we get later. Finally, and most significantly, Jesus' miracles glorified God. They put the unique power and authority of God on display for all who had eyes to see to see. The beginning and heart of the gospel is the reality that God is greater than you can ever imagine. In no small measure, Jesus' miracles helped us to see that. Grace, kids especially, if you are anything like me, you spent a good deal of your life bored with God. God was boring. Church was boring. If you're anything, I hope you're not like me, but if you are, you spent a good deal of your life bored with God. For a long time, I believed he was real and definitely more powerful than me, but not all that impressive. In that way, I suppose I saw him something like a hydraulic press. You ever seen those YouTube deals? They put different things in a hydraulic press just to see what happens when they're crushed. It's fun to play with for a while and occasionally, but certainly nothing that you want to spend all of your day, much less all of eternity, staring at. That's, I think that's roughly how I viewed God. More powerful than me. I can't crush skills and make a ooze out like that. Fun to play with here and there, take off and turn on at my pleasure, but certainly nothing that would impress me for eternity. By God's grace, however, I came to recognize that he is infinitely glorious, the true and greatest treasure, and the only truly satisfying thing in all of existence. And again, part of the purpose of Jesus' miracles is to help us get a glimpse of that. And that leads to the final section. The question that we ought to be asking at this point is how the people would respond. A triple turbo miracle must have caused everyone to marvel and wonder and surrender and believe, right? I mean, it's not just a miracle. It's a triple turbo miracle. It must have led them to see that God is greater than they had imagined, right? This act of mercy, this this validating act, this display of God's unmatched glory must have led to repentance and revival among those who saw these things. Right? Well, no, (laughs) not in the least. The Jews became violently angry. And more staggering still, Grace, listen to this. The man that Jesus healed seemed more concerned with the authority of the religious leaders than the one who just healed him. There's no record of anyone believing at all as a result of this. Let me me share a little bit about both of those. The anger of the Jewish leaders and the unbelief of the man who was healed. In anger, the Jewish leader, the, the anger of the Jewish leaders is largely the subject of next week's sermon. Next week's sermon is going to pick up with verse 15 and keep going on. So I only mean to touch on this right here. Rather than respond in any reasonable way to what Jesus did, the Jewish leaders became incensed. Look at verse 16. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things, healing a 40-year paralyzed man on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. I'm 
I'm excited to unpack that for you next week. This too then, verse 18 says, is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath or, or making other people do that, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. According to these three verses, the two main reasons for their anger were that by telling the man to carry his bedding on the Sabbath, Jesus caused him to violate one of their traditions and laws. And secondly, that Jesus would claim divine authority. For now, I simply want you to see that even the most miraculous miracle is not enough to overcome the blinding effects of sin. Remember that. Even the most miraculous miracle is not enough to overcome the blinding effects of sin. And so finally then, we need to consider the most shocking example of the sinfulness of sin yet, the hardness of what sin does. To be born in Adam is to be born with the heart of stone. It's to be born dead in your trespasses and sins. And here we see one of the most shocking examples of that yet. When the Jewish leaders heard that a man was healed on the Sabbath, they, and, and that he subsequently violated one of their Sabbath rules, they went to him to question him. Verse 10, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Well, at this point, had the man rightly responded to his miraculous healing, he would have been filled with belief and worship. He would have been shocked at the response of the religious leaders. Are you kidding me? That's what you're worried about right now? And he would have quickly and courageously called them to repent and hear the truth. Instead, verse 11, he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. Does that remind you of anything? Reminds me of the garden. It's this woman that you can't, it's her fault. Ah, go talk to her. Instead of testifying to the glory of God, the man threw Jesus under the bus. He blamed Jesus for his, his, his violation. When pressed further, they asked him, who is the man who said you take up your bed and walk? Again, curiously, the man didn't, didn't know. He, he couldn't answer that, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place right after he healed him. Grace, do you see what this man is doing? Instead of longing to be closer to his healer, the man tried to distance himself from Jesus. He, he, was, trying to, he, he was trying to get further away from him. And on top of all that, when Jesus did reveal himself to the man, instead of gratitude and praise and belief and surrender, he went and told on Jesus, reporting him to the Jews who had accused him of violating the Sabbath. The man went away and told the Jews, verse 15, that it was Jesus who had healed him. Follow me with this. I mentioned last week that we're often surprised to hear that someone could witness a miracle and not believe, right? We're often surprised that someone could see Jesus do a miracle. You and I are prone to think if we could just see one, our belief would take another level. Or, or maybe if my unbelieving parent or friend could just see a miracle, they would believe. That's surprising. We saw last week that what's more surprising still is that the vast, vast majority, not only is it possible to see a miracle and not believe, the vast, vast majority of people who saw one didn't. 
It's not even close as the gospels record it. Far, far, far more people who saw these signs and wonders didn't believe than did. Okay, well, here's the most surprising one still. Not only does not seeing a miracle guarantee you'll believe, not only do most people who see a miracle not believe, but this person who had a miracle, miracle performed on him didn't believe. That's crazy. If you really understand this, it should do at least two things simultaneously in your head and in your, in your heart. It should boggle your mind that we can be so thoroughly dense, or in more theological terms, that we can be so entirely, completely depraved. It should help you, secondly, to see that your sin goes deeper than you realized. If you can see this, if you can have this done to you and not believe, you need to see that sin is far more deadly, far more blinding, far more disorienting, far more disordering than you have imagined. Have you ever have you ever thought if only I could see a miracle? It's not enough. You need something more, and I need something more. If only I could understand how God could be good and allow evil to exist, I, I, could, I would believe. If if only He would heal this person or answer this question or do this thing, I would believe. Grace in all of this, and in conclusion, we see once again that our only hope is the grace of God. There is nothing, not signs, not wonders, not miracles, grace, not even the gospel itself is able to save us apart from the illuminating, regenerating grace of God. We need God's grace even to see our sin that we might repent of it and turn to him in faith. We need to, we need God's grace even to have ears to hear the gospel when it comes to us. And stories like this in John's gospel help us to see this plainly. So let us be a people of prayer, therefore. Let us be a people of prayer, constantly beseeching the God of heaven, the God of miracles, to give us and all who come into contact with us the good, both the good news of Jesus, that's one gift, to have the gospel is one gift, and the ability to see it for what it is, the power of God unto salvation for all who would believe. Let us pray that God would grant both. Let me close by asking you then, do you want to be healed? We'll end where we started. Do you want to be healed? Jesus' ability to heal physically was once again ultimately a validation that he could heal you in a far greater way. Whatever physical need you have to be healed from, you have a spiritual need that's greater still. Jesus can heal your body, but more importantly, he can heal your soul. Do you want to be healed? If so, turn in faith to Jesus today.